If you would take out your Bibles and turn in them to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, we find our text for today is, uh, the, we're going to read the first 22 verses in Luke chapter 3. Uh, we're going to spend most of our time on the first half of that uh, passage that we read. Today we're, we're uh, out of what I would call the introduction. The introduction is the infancy narratives, including that passage we studied last week about Jesus as a 12-year-old staying in the temple. Uh, we're out of that now. That's the introduction. And now we're kind of in this little transition because it's about John the Baptist, right? And so we're not all the way into the ministry of Jesus yet, but we're, uh, we're very close. John is this ministry of preparation, this last prophet uh, that sort of belongs with all the old covenant prophets who is leading up to the ministry of Jesus. And so that is what we read about today, John the Baptist and how he came preaching proclaiming this uh, message as a preparation for the ministry of Jesus. So, I'm going to read Luke 3, 1 through 22, and let me ask if you're able, would you please join me in standing for the reading of God's holy word today? This is the word of God. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire." And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? He said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And, what, and we, what shall we do? He said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. And be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff 
he will burn with unquenchable fire. So, with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful. We're humbled that we receive such a gift as your word given to us, even in written form, that we might all have a copy of it. Lord, that we might open it at will and read the word of the Lord given to us. And so, Father, we ask your blessing on this time of reading and studying, this time of teaching and listening. Lord, we pray that by the power of your spirit, you will add your blessing, that your word will fulfill its purposes, that it will not return to you void, but it will accomplish that for which you have sent it. That it might speak to our hearts, that it might draw them to you, or that we might, through it, gain a clearer, fuller picture of Christ, that we might see his glory, that we might see his mercy. Lord, that in all things we might put our trust, our faith in him, and walk with him day by day. We pray that you would do this uh, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. This Saturday is the meeting of our Presbytery, which is our regional body of churches that uh, we consider to be all of our sister churches here in our denomination. And uh, one of my roles in our Presbytery is that I'm a member of our Credentials Committee, which is uh, a place where we examine all the new ministers who are coming into our Presbytery. Anyone who uh, seeks to be a pastor in our denomination has to go through this rigorous process. And as part of that process... One of the things that they are required to do is that they come and they preach what we call a trial sermon to our presbytery. And that means they have to get up in front of this whole room full of pastors and other elders of the churches and they they preach in order for everyone to not only listen and be edified but also they are there to critique and to judge whether or not this person is adequately prepared uh, to preach regularly in the churches, whether they are now... Uh, fit to be one of our pastors. And so it's a a kind of a nerve-wracking experience to be that guy. I I did that long ago, uh, to stand in front of a whole room of pastors and to have to preach to them, knowing that they are judging you on that sermon. And so when I was coming uh, for my turn of doing that, I I received advice. Uh, Someone told me, when you're preaching and everyone is listening to critique you, said, just preach the most bland, forgettable sermon you can possibly preach. Just go right down the center. Don't try to be controversial. Right? Don't try to bring up anything that people are going to have questions or opinions about. Just be as bland and, and boring as possible. Don't stir anything up. Don't choose a tough passage. And I admit, that was actually really good advice. I, I got almost no comments on my sermon, which was exactly what I wanted that day. Uh, I have since passed that advice on to other men as they come for their turn. And so as we read this passage today, I can't help but think that John does not stand a chance of passing a presbytery exam. This sermon is anything but bland. 
It's anything but uncontroversial. This is pointed. This is designed to shake people up. This is designed to, to shake people and to have controversy and to get people to react. Right? It's meant to be controversial, but in the best possible way. It's meant to get us to stop and to listen and to think to ourselves, did he just say that? And why? Why did he say that? And what does he mean by it? What does he want me to do because of it? Right? Why is he speaking the way he is speaking? He wants us to stop and to listen and to do a bit of self-reflection. Perhaps he wants us to ask questions such as, where really is our trust? How real really is my faith? Am I really living for God or am I just pretending? These are the questions that John presses on his listeners because he speaks boldly. And so what I want us to see, we're going to go through John's sermon to the people and recognize that what he is doing is he is preaching a gospel sermon with some very pointed applications. This is what I would call a gospel sermon with some very pointed applications. And we'll look at it under three headings. Very simple and very straightforward. Grace, faith, and repentance. Grace, faith, and repentance. The three uh, very simple steps of understanding the gospel and responding to it appropriately. Grace, faith, and repentance. Uh, First we'll see the grace and and we start reading this passage in this chapter and it starts with um, a verse or two of these names, right? We heard all these names where Luke is doing what a good historian does first. He's locating this story historically by giving us exactly not just who was emperor or king or ruler at the time, but all these people who were in office, uh, which tells us something. It tells us first, if we know the, the history of these names, that this is a dark time. These are some harsh rulers in this moment. And that is the context, in fact, for when God is bringing his salvation to his people. And in the midst of that, we hear that that is when the word of God comes to John in the wilderness. Just like the word of God used to come to the prophets in the Old Testament. It begins by saying, the word of God came to John. John is in the wilderness and now he is receiving the word and he begins to preach. He begins to proclaim a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And and to describe what he's doing, Luke gives us this long quote. We see it here in verses 4 and 5 and 6. He's quoting out of the book of Isaiah. And he gives us this quote to help us understand what John is doing. He wants us to be able to put it in the context of Scripture And so he says, it's just like Isaiah has said. Now, if you have your Bibles, I actually want to turn to Isaiah chapter 40 because I think this is an important passage. Isaiah chapter 40 is where he's quoting from here. If you remember in these days, uh, Isaiah is writing to the people of Israel uh, for this time when they are in captivity. They have been taken into Babylon. If you remember all the stories of Daniel under Nebuchadnezzar, he was the Babylonian king. That's during this time period when they're in captivity. Uh, Babylon had sacked Jerusalem. They had taken um, the majority of the people and simply marched them across the desert into captivity in Babylon. And so if you remember even Psalm 137, Psalm 137 
was written during that time, and it says, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. It says, How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Right? They're weeping. They're sitting down there in Babylon, and they're weeping when they remembered Zion, right? when they remembered Jerusalem, when they remembered the Lord's house, when they remembered what it was to live in the Lord's land, there and to offer sacrifices, to go to the temple, to pray, to have God's people. And now all that is gone. All that has been taken from them. They've been marched into captivity. And it says, there we sat down and we wept. Here it is, just described as being one of the lowest of the low points during the whole Old Testament time. People have been rooted out of their land. They've been rooted out of Israel and they're living in the far country. And you just hear the voice of the pain. No doubt they had some strong feelings that perhaps the Lord had just forgotten them. Right? Perhaps the Lord had forgotten to care for them. The Lord was not paying much attention. The Lord had let them go. How else would they explain these dark times? How else could they explain what had happened to them in life except perhaps to think that I suppose the Lord has given up on them. The Lord finally had enough. But it's at that time, and it's right here, it's in Isaiah 40, where God now addresses his people. These people who are in captivity, right? they're in this far country, they feel abandoned, they feel forgotten, and God announces, now is the time of his salvation. Right? Now he is going to come for them. We see in Isaiah 40, verse 1, where it begins, comfort, comfort my people. Right? To all these people who feel abandoned and forgotten and lost, here's the announcement of good news. And it begins, comfort, comfort my people, Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. This is verse 2. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. And we remember that this had to be comforting to hear. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. They're not in Jerusalem. They have now spent 70 plus years in Babylon. That's long enough that they probably forgot what Jerusalem was like. They forgot what it was like to be called by that sweet name of God's people. And now God is speaking to them. And he doesn't call them by the Babylonian names. He speaks to them, calling them by name of Jerusalem. Because they are still his people. And then he makes this announcement. It starts in verse 3 in Isaiah 40. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground uh, shall become level and the rough places a plain. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, this voice is crying in the wilderness, prepare uh, the way of the Lord. Now remember, it's, it's important that he says in the wilderness because there is a lot of wilderness between Babylon and Jerusalem. Right? It's, it's mainly the vast Arabian desert. It is a very real physical barrier that separated the people of God from the land of God. Right? When they are in captivity, there was an enormous wilderness that was daunting and intimidating, almost even impossible to cross, that separated them from home. And now what is the voice crying? The voice is saying, in that wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Prepare the way for the Lord. And here's why 
They are called on to prepare a way through the wilderness, not because they are going home, but because God is coming to them. Right? The way is being prepared not because they are going to set off on their own to go home, but because God now is coming to them. He is going to come and rescue them. And of course, this is very poetic, right? This is very metaphorical. They don't literally need to build a road if God is going to cross the desert. But he's telling them to get ready because God is about to be on the move and to bring his salvation. God is going to come and redeem them, right? He's going to come set them free. Here they've been 70 years in captivity and slavery and bondage to the Babylonians. And now their God is coming to rescue them, to redeem them out of that slavery. And, and here's what we hear, that this is not just sort of a general good news. This is very specific. At this time, God now is coming. Right after all these years, all these years of, of captivity and this feeling of loneliness and abandonment, it says now is the time of salvation. Now is when God is on the move. And we have to hear that, that, that God is the one coming to them not them coming to God. Because why? The people were in slavery. They did not have the freedom to just get up and, and go back to Israel. And if that were an option, they could have done that long ago. But they were enslaved. Right? It wasn't up to them. They could not leave on their own. But now, God is coming to get them. God is coming to get them. Now is the time of salvation. God is going to do for them what they cannot do themselves God is going to cross the uncrossable wilderness to rescue his people. In some ways, the imagery of, of salvation here, it's very similar to Jesus' parable of the lost sheep. When Jesus teaches about the good shepherd and he says there's one of the sheep that wanders away, right? the shepherd has a hundred sheep and one wanders away into the wilderness. And the good shepherd doesn't wait for that sheep to get its act together doesn't wait for that sheep to, to get out his map and compass and find his way home. The good shepherd leaves the 99 to go into the wilderness. Right? To take the risk and the danger all upon himself and to go into the desert and the wilderness to search for that one sheep that has wandered away. Some of you will know or remember the song we've occasionally sung here uh, about that passage that come, comes from Luke 15, that parable of the lost sheep. And we sing these words... Lord, thou hast here thy ninety and nine. Are they not enough for thee? But the shepherd made answer, This of mine has wandered away from me. And though the road be rough and steep, I go to the desert to find my sheep. I go to the desert to find my sheep. Isn't that a, a vivid picture of the grace of God to us in the gospel? A, a vivid picture of how we are the ones in our sin, we are the ones who have wandered away. We are the ones who have gone out into the wilderness, leaving the, the green pastures. We are the ones who have sinned. We got ourselves into trouble. And not just trouble, but we get, become enslaved to our sin. Right? We're in the bondage of our sin. We don't have the option of just saying, you know, I'm just going to stop sinning and I'm just going to go back to God. Right? We're enslaved in it and yet, here, it's at that moment that God in his own loving kindness, out of his own mercy, he doesn't just sit there on his high throne, you know, tapping his fingers, waiting for the lost sheep to come home. God in his mercy is the one who he says he goes, right? He loved us so much that he sent his son Jesus Christ while we were yet sinners to find us, 
to rescue us and to redeem us. Right? We find it's a, it's a picture of what God has done in the gospel. And so when Isaiah is saying, and then, then, then about John is saying, prepare the way for the Lord, what does that mean? What are we called to do then? How do we prepare ourselves knowing this good news, having heard that God in his mercy is coming for his people? What does it mean for you to prepare yourself? It means, first of all, of course, that, that you know yourself to be the sheep who has wandered away. Right? That you understand what that means about you uh, and that you have, in fact, wandered away, but it's worse than that. You are now captive to your sins. Not strong enough to escape, but now we hear the good news. The good news is that Jesus, in his mercy, comes for you. He comes to rescue. He comes to redeem. We sang, we sang just, just today. I, I hadn't thought of this until we sang it. When we were singing our song, We Will Say in That Day, some of you know that is a song that is a sort of a, a poetic uh, writing of Isaiah chapter 12. And the theme is so similar of preparing for the Lord's salvation to rejoice in it. And we sang that fourth verse, when the remnant return to the promised land, when the highway of God brings us home to him, we'll be welcomed with love by our Savior friend and we'll join in the song of the Lord. See, that's the Isaiah theme of this highway that is being prepared for God to come and to rescue his people and to lead us home back to the promised land in it. That's what Isaiah is proclaiming and the message is, therefore, we need to be prepared. Now, if we come all the way back to Luke chapter 3, John's out in the wilderness. John receives the word of the Lord that comes to him. He's preaching and proclaiming this baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And Luke describes it with this quote from Isaiah. Why? Because what he sees in John's preaching is not just some oddball prophet and who's out in the wilderness Right? eating locusts and honey like a weirdo, he sees that John is proclaiming exactly what Isaiah proclaimed. Good news. God is coming for his lost people. God is now on the move and coming to save and to rescue and redeem. After all this time of, of God's silence, right? it's been 400 years since there was a prophet of the Lord. And the people probably felt forgotten. The people probably felt abandoned. The people probably wondered if God was ever going to do anything for them again. And now John is proclaiming, prepare the way for the Lord because God is coming. Right? We're not preparing a way for us to go back. We're preparing a way because God is coming to us. Right? He is the Savior who is coming to save his people. And he's saying prepare, except this time God is not crossing simply only the Arabian desert. It's much greater than that, isn't it? God now, in this instance, he's crossing space and time where the eternal and infinite Son of God is becoming a man to save his people, to bring us home. And that's setting the whole expectation. This is how we prepare for the ministry of Jesus, is to see this is what he's doing, right? This is what it means that Jesus is going to come teaching and baptizing and healing. What is that? That is God coming to rescue his people. So that's the expectation that he begins with this message of grace. Right? It's, it's grace because God is taking the initiative. 
First, it's grace. Second, it's faith. Verse 7, this is where we actually get some of the very first recorded words of John the Baptist. And, uh, and this is where I, I feel like John might not pass a presbytery exam because John is very bold, shall we say. John doesn't mince his words here, does he? He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Now, that's generally not taken as a compliment, right? Especially in the Bible, snakes don't have the greatest reputation, right? Going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, snakes weren't the good guys. This is quite a way to start his sermon. But we see in verse 8 why he's doing this. And I think he actually has a very good reason. We see in verse 8, it says, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. Here's what John is doing. He's doing something that I call pre-evangelism. Pre-evangelism. He hasn't even gotten to the evangelism yet. First, he has to do the pre-evangelism. And here's what that is. When, uh, when Aubrey and I moved here seven years ago to California, we came from South Carolina. And South Carolina, in the South, is just enough part of the Bible Belt, which is this part of the South and, and maybe parts of the Midwest as well, where, for better or worse, Christianity has had a deep influence on the moral fiber of society. Uh, whereas here in Los Angeles... It's a very secular culture. It's very different from the culture of the South or even the Midwest. And, and one of the ways that shows up is this. I think I would say here in Los Angeles, I, I would say it's probably generally not especially cool to be a Christian. And so if you are a Christian, you know that you are. And if you're not a Christian, you know that you're not. And those lines here in California are generally pretty clear, and that's actually kind of nice. But in the South, it's actually different. Right? Because Christian morals have influenced society in the South so much through laws, through customs, that, that people can still talk about having the remnants of a Christian culture in the South, and it actually makes a little bit of sense. Right? It makes a little bit of sense um, and so you still find people, and I talk to a lot of people like this in South Carolina, who, who think that they are Christians because they are born in America. Right? It's a Christian nation. Just to be born here makes you a Christian. Or they say, you know, you ask them if they're a Christian or if they have faith, and, and they say, sure I am. Sure I am. My parents went to the church down the street. And I say, and, and then, and then, but that's it. That's their whole answer is they're a Christian because their parents went to church or because they were baptized in a church as a baby. Or perhaps they, don't, they think that they're a Christian because they don't do drugs or they don't, they don't drink a whole lot or, or they vote Republican. And there's all this confusion about what it actually means to be a Christian. And so in a culture like that, you can't just launch into evangelism. You have to start by doing this pre-evangelism and that means you have to help people understand that they're not a Christian. Right? Sometimes you actually have to work to convince people, no, you're not a Christian, before you can try to convince them to actually become a Christian. Right? Because they think they are, but they're so confused about what it actually requires of them, what it means to be a Christian. And you have to help them see you're not a Christian because of where you were born, or because of who your parents were, or because of your general notions of morality. 
you have to help them see if you are not trusting in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ as your substitute, then you are not a Christian. And I think that's what John is doing in these verses. That's what John is doing. He says in verse 8, do not begin to say we have Abraham as our father. He says God can raise up children for Abraham from these rocks. And that doesn't mean anything. Here he is addressing this predominantly Jewish audience. And he has to begin by saying being Jewish by physical descent is not enough. And that's not enough. He's saying don't trust in your ancestry. Don't trust in your family line to make you right with God. I don't trust in the fact that, that your parents were super active in their church, right? Your dad was an elder. He was a deacon. They sang in the choir. They were there every time the doors were open. He's saying don't, don't put your hope in that. Don't put your trust in that to make you right with God because of your family line. Especially, we see what comes next. He has to encourage them. Please stop robbing and lying and extorting people. Right here he's talking to this people who are, are just really bad. Right? They're generally pretty evil. They're li- living these very sinful lifestyles. And yet they think they can say, listen, I can trace my, you know, my, my ancestry.com all the way back to Abraham, so I'm good. Right? So everything is okay with them. Now, we bring that back to today. We, uh, you know, unless people are Jewish today, they probably don't claim they're okay because of a righteous family line, but sometimes. And whether they do or don't, everybody has something. Don't they? Everyone has something that that they are trusting in. We're hardwired as humans to have this need to to justify ourselves. To say, I am okay because fill in the blank. And everyone has that thing they're trusting in. They say, well, I'm an honest person. Or I'm a good neighbor. Or, you know, maybe I'm not a good neighbor, but, you know, I give a lot of money to charity. Or maybe I'm not really generous, but, you know, I'm a hard worker. You know, I don't cut people off in traffic very often. Right? We all look for something. Even, uh, one pastor even pointed out one time, he said, even, you know, you watch the Godfather movies about these mobsters, and he said, even they will say, yeah, I'm a good son. Right? There's something that they, they cling to to try to justify themselves, to say, I have this. I may be murdering people for hire, but, you know, I'm a good son. Right? Everyone has something. We're just spring-loaded to look to ourselves to justify ourselves. But none of those things earn us any favor with God. Right? The gospel is that you are accepted by God because of the work and the life of somebody else. Right? It's not anything that you have done or been. It's somebody else. And John here is calling for a very thorough investigation of your heart. Right, to ask those difficult questions and to say, what is it that I am really trusting in? Have I ever really examined that? Have I ever really brought that out into the open and said, where is my faith? You know, where is the, the rock bottom foundation of it? Or another way to put it, what is the one thing in your life that if it was taken away from you, you would feel like you don't know who you are anymore? That, that tends to be the one thing that we are always looking to, to say, you know, all these other things in life, they don't matter as much as long as I have this. Right? Whether that's part of our reputation, that's something that we do, that's something that we have or are, there's always something. 
Right? For the Jews in the first century, they might say, everything can take, be taken away from me. I still have my heritage. I still have my, my lineage, my ancestry. Um, and, and usually, just to, to help you find that thing, it's usually something really good. Right? It's not terrible things because we're, we don't put our hope in terrible things. We're better than that. It's usually something good. Right? It, it could even be something like, uh, you know, if it's something like going to church and, and serving actively. Well, we say that's a great thing. I, I want you all to go to church regularly and to serve actively. But I don't want you to put your hope for the future in that. I don't want you to find your sense of personal identity in that, but rather in Christ. And so the message is prepare the way. Prepare the way of the Lord. Prepare the way not by building a road physically, but by examining your heart. Now, point three. We've had the beginning is the grace that God himself is coming to us. The second point is faith, what it means to put our faith in Christ and him alone. And the third point here is repentance. Repentance. This is verses 10 through 14, this third point, or what we might say, this is, this is John's application to the people. This is John's application. And, and three different categories of people here ask John about what they are to do in light of this news. We hear from the crowds, the tax collectors, and the soldiers. And John is exhorting these people, how are they supposed to live in light of God's salvation? Right, in light of this good news, how should we then live? And so the crowds come and ask him, what shall we do? And he answers, whoever has two tunics should share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do the same. And the tax collectors come and, and they say, what shall we do? And, and he says to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. And the soldiers come and, and ask the same question, and John says, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Here's what John is doing. John is very specific and very concrete in helping the people understand what it means to respond to the message of God's grace. Right? If he is proclaiming that Jesus is the one who is to come, Right? Salvation is coming. All flesh together shall see it. God is coming to rescue his people. Well, what should we then do? And John gives them these very practical, concrete steps. Because this is the natural step after putting your faith in Jesus. It is then part of that means you turn towards Jesus and you turn away from your sins. Right? This is so important because it's not real repentance if you don't actually turn away from sin. Right? We can't say that we're repenting, but secretly we're kind of holding on to these sins. Secretly we want to, to keep them for ourselves. Dietrich Bonhoeffer long ago had a term for this sort of thing. He called that cheap grace. Cheap grace. Cheap grace was the kind of grace that says, you can be saved and it doesn't require any sort of discipleship from you. Right? It doesn't require you to actually repent and to turn away from your sins or to leave those things behind. He says it's just... It's the preaching of grace that, that just provides uh, acceptance with no requirements. And he said that's not actually what the Bible teaches of grace. He said real grace, the grace that Jesus brings, the grace that the Bible proclaims, says you are saved completely freely. Right? It's still free. It's the grace of God. It's nothing that you can do. But once you accept that kind of grace, 
It teaches you to turn away from your sins. Right? And that response, do I turn away or do I not, is what shows what kind of grace it was. Right? Titus 2.12 says, the grace of God has appeared that teaches us to say no to ungodliness. That's what grace does. Right? Grace isn't this sort of like, you know, just kindly word that says, yeah, you don't have to do anything. No, grace says, turn from your sins. Turn from them, leave them behind. Pursue what it means now to walk with Christ. Pursue discipleship, pursue following Christ. True grace never leaves us in our sins. It saves us, it takes us out of our sins, and calls us now not to walk in those sins any longer. In fact, it would be right to say, if you have no desire to turn away from your sins, then perhaps you haven't experienced the real grace of God at all. Right? Titus is so clear, grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness. We can't walk in grace and in sin at the same time and be happy about that. So John is asking very pointed questions, and he's giving very pointed application. He's very specific. And he says to these people, the grace of God is coming. First, trust not in yourselves, right? Examine where your faith is. And second, turn away from your sins, right? Allow the grace to come and to save you. Now, we get to verse 18 in this passage, and it's almost a little surprising. John has been so bold, right? He's so straightforward. He's not beating around the bush. And verse 18 says, so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. We almost could read through this and think, gosh, this is not good news. But Luke tells us exactly that it is good news, right? Luke assures us that to speak plainly about God's coming judgment and the need to be certain that your trust is in him and in him alone is good news. The need to be sure that you're not fooling yourself, the need to be certain that you have a true acquaintance with the grace of God. That's good news. That's good news. John is preaching these things to us to help us, right, for our benefit, to help us see clearly, to help us know Christ. These things might not sound the way John presents them, might not sound like what we're used to calling good news. But gospel preachers are called to tell the truth. They're called to speak plainly. They're called to call people to account, to turn from sin, to trust only in Jesus, to examine where their trust is. And so John is willing to do that. He's willing to call people out. He's willing to lead them to Jesus. Any sermon that asks you to give up on sin and to follow Jesus is good news. Because that's the grace of God for us in Christ, that we are saved not by what we have done, not by who we have come from, not by anything about us. We're saved by Christ and Christ alone. And when we're saved by him, we are called to follow him as well. And so, friends, we are to prepare the way of the Lord in our hearts to make a way for him so that all flesh may see the salvation of our God. Let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful for the coming of Christ. We are thankful that he comes as one who calls us away from ourselves who calls us to give up on our sins, who calls us to follow him by grace and by grace alone. And Lord, we know that the response to that is, is very simple and it's also very difficult. 
It's simple to say yes and to look to Him in faith and it's difficult to recognize what He calls us to, to live this life of discipleship, to recognize that this now makes a claim on us. And so, Lord, we pray that Your Word will accomplish its purpose. Lord, we pray that Your Spirit will press these things on our hearts. Lord, that they will take root, that they will grow, and that they will bear fruit in our lives. 30, 60, 100 times that which you have sown. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.